0: Talk with Jessica this last weekend before it happens, and she will help you get there as well. Okay? Does that sound good? Are you awake? Okay, we're getting there. We've we've got some good stuff to cover today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter four. We're gonna be there in just a second. But we started last week a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we titled it Flourish. I think that'll become more clear as to why, um, both today and next week. But before we get into more of the sermon, we do need to give everyone a brief rundown of what we talked about last week. Because either you weren't here, or odds are you remembered about 3% of what I said last week. So... Uh, And hopefully you remembered the good stuff, the scripture. So I just want to remind you about how we are framing this series, because it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying in the sermon, specifically about what it means to the audience he's saying it to, so that we can properly apply it to our lives today. This sermon has been titled, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, and so when it... The Bible says something like that, right? Like when people are saying throughout all of history, Jesus preached this sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, my ears perk up, and I want to listen, and I want to understand it. I want to understand what Jesus is saying. So we began our series last week, Foundation, and we read Jesus's closing words in the sermon in Matthew 7. They're going to be on the screen, and I'm going to read them to you. Verse Verse 24 through 25 says, Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So we see here in this passage the closing moments of Jesus' sermon. He's saying, hey, build your house on the rock. Okay, so in Jesus's analogy, the house is our life. And the rock are, the rock is his teachings, the the content in the sermon. He's saying, hey, build your life on these words. Don't just know them, but put them into practice. And so last week, we started setting the table for what is, I'm calling, the feast of the Sermon on the Mount. And we did it by looking at the kingdom of heaven. Okay. We surveyed the storyline of all of creation from when it was made in Genesis 1, when it was lost in Genesis 3, and to when it's remade in Revelation 21. That's the broad kind of real base level story of God's kingdom, made, lost, and And remade. But in between there, it's reinitiated by Jesus's arrival. This is what we talked about last week. The story between the kingdom being lost in Genesis 3 and being remade in Revelation 21 is not just a time for the Christian to hunker down and try to survive. Rather, it's an opportunity for us to do as Jesus said, build our lives on his teaching, and because of that, then we can flourish. God wants his children to flourish. So God sends Jesus to reinitiate the kingdom of heaven, creating spaces where heaven and earth overlap, or as he stated in John 1, where the light invades the darkness. We learned last week that the presence of God is no longer dwelling in the temple as it did in the Old Testament, but rather It's dwelling in Jesus and then eventually among his people by the Holy Spirit. So, John 1 14 says this The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, as we know from the Gospels, Jesus was the presence of God on earth. But he was never meant to dwell on earth forever. He was going to return to heaven. And so in John 14, we learn that Jesus has said, my presence is going to be gone, but God's presence is going to remain with you through a helper. John fourteen fifteen through 17 says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So we finished last week with our conversation on the kingdom of heaven by highlighting the reality that for every Christian, you are now the space where God's presence overlaps with the earth. Because God's presence is in us and with us, you are now the place where God's presence overlaps with the earth. When you go to Starbucks, God's presence is there. When you go to the fair and you eat 12 corn dogs, God's presence is there. I mean, it just happens, right? And so that leads us to this week where we are going to finish laying the groundwork for the sermon. Now, I love the title of the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it's not just because Jesus preached it on a mountain, although that's probably the most obvious explanation for why it's titled the Sermon on the Mount, but it's also because the sermon is mountainous in its content. It's like ascending a mountain and coming back down. In fact, I put together a nice little visual of how it starts. It peaks with the Lord's Prayer and then returns down to the two ways to live, which we will cover all of those in the coming weeks. But today, we find ourselves at base camp. And the function, if you've ever done a climb, whether it's a day climb or a multi-day climb of base camp, is to set the person up for the journey in front of them, right? It's to make sure that you have everything you need in order to make the correct and safe, proper ascent. And so that is our task today, to finish the prep for the mountain that's in front of us. And to do that, we need to familiarize ourselves. In fact, I love this. It's a little nerdy. Those of you who are like me who are a little nerdy are probably going to appreciate the, the tone of academic content here. But don't worry. Uh, we're going to read the sermon as well, which is the most important thing. But I just love understanding the nature of Jesus' words kind of underneath. I know Ava does too. Ava is right there with me. Right, Ava? She's really excited. She told me before when I was telling her about the sermon. So in order to do that properly, we're going to back up from Matthew 5. If you remember last week, Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We backed all the way up to Genesis 1. That's quite a ways. Today, we're just going to go to Matthew 4, okay? We're going to go to Matthew 4, not quite as far back. And Jesus is beginning his career as a preacher. Now, I will admit, he has a head start because he's God, okay? But it's still early on, and so when he makes inflammatory statements or statements that are uh, robust or anything like this where you're going to go, oh, he's commanding something, you you, want to pay attention. And so he He has this meta theme that he has throughout all of his teachings, which is the kingdom of heaven. That's why it was so important for us to understand what the kingdom of heaven means and how it looks, because that's going to be key in the ingredients of his sermons. But last week, we did that. This week, we come to this moment where he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven, and in Matthew 4, 17, it says this. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. This is the the, um, beginning of his preaching ministry, And and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, we learned about the kingdom of heaven, but that first term is one that I want us to pay attention to as we prepare ourselves for the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, repent. Now, when you hear the word repent, what does it do to your brain? Just think about what comes to mind. And I want you to know Jesus, I mean, typically, obviously, like I grew up going to youth group and the youth pastor was like, you held a hand, repent, right? No, he didn't do that. I'm kidding. But you get the point. It can be used in many contexts. But what Jesus is trying to say here is he's not just warning us to turn from our sin, Although that is part of it, or to even have remorse for our sin, which is something that's real, Jesus is teaching us to turn away from an old way of thinking or understanding in life, one that was attached to a world before Jesus. And he's commanding us to turn towards a different way of thinking, one that is involving the kingdom of heaven as it stands today. And why is that? Because he says it right there in that verse. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is saying it's time to start thinking differently about the world because the kingdom of God has been reinitiated with the arrival of Jesus. Jesus knew that what he was about to teach in the Sermon on the Mount was going to flip the world upside down. And next week, when we dive into the Beatitudes, when we start the actual sermon, which is a set of teachings that Jesus offered, they seem so counter cultural to even us as Christians today, if I'm honest. I'm excited to do it because I think, much like I said in the week um, before, week one, the sermon is like a mirror where you look at yourself. And most of us don't love looking in mirrors for various reasons. But This spiritual mirror that we're going to look into is going to challenge us the way that we think and the way that we act in our life. So in his day, his audience, the people that were listening to Jesus would have had a hard time believing and applying what he was about to say because it just was so countercultural to them. It was just so different from what they had heard before. So he's saying, repent, change the way you think about things, get ready to understand. Okay, so let's do some work in understanding the cultural backdrop for this sermon. This is actually really important, like what's happening in Jesus's day that he's preaching this sermon and that how people, they would have heard it in a specific way that would have changed the way they think about something very important. His audience, Uh, are much like us in one specific way. We're separated by a few thousand years, but we're really similar in this particular way. They're trying to answer the question, how can I live a happy life? Now, I would contend, we've we've all asked that question. We've all thought about it. How can I live a happy life? Now, I would contend that people actually want to know how to live a meaningful life, because I think meaning actually... Is the basis for happiness, but what we hear so often is, I just wanna be happy. Or if I just do this thing, or if I just have this thing, I will be happy. Well, Jesus' audience was wrestling with the same thing, but they're different, so they're the same in that way, but they're different in how they approach and how they understand happiness. And this is what we want to highlight. This is what we want to understand. Jesus' teaching lands at the intersection of two very significant cultural understandings of happiness and how to pursue happiness, how to find meaning, how to find fulfillment. And those two cultural backdrops are the Jewish wisdom literature and Greco-Roman virtue tradition. Now, both traditions are focused. I know you're both like, whoa, That's amazing, Pastor Rick. Both traditions are focused on answering how someone lives a happy life, how they have a good life. And you might be thinking to yourself, why does this matter? Well, the reason is, is that it's going to give us a compass or a map so that we can have proper orientation with the Sermon on the Mount and how to apply Jesus' teachings. Because as I said before, as we read at the beginning, Jesus is going to say, in order to have... A good life. You're going to have to build your life on my teachings. And so in order to understand those teachings, we need to have the correct perspective on what Jesus was saying. So the first context is the second temple Jewish Jewish wisdom literature. I know, it's a mouthful. There's no way that we could exhaust this context today. There's just no way that we could do it. But we need to do a little bit of work here. There is a professor and a preacher named Dr. Jonathan Pennington, and this is what he says in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Jesus, Christianity, and the New Testament documents are birthed directly out of Judaism, and so whatever else we understand about their meaning must be grounded in this reality. The wisdom literature, which we will not read or understand in its entirety today, is directing and shaping how at least part of his audience would have understand what Jesus was teaching. Many of Jesus's listeners had much of these writings memorized. We don't. Maybe. Anybody? No? Okay. So the teachings don't necessarily hit our hearts and our minds the same way. We're not even talking scripture. We're talking about other writings that uh, were answering the question How do you live a happy life? So, we're not going to exhaust those because it's not really the point. The point is, or the big idea is, they were wrestling with this question in the messiness that is life, how do I get to a point where I'm happy, feel successful, and more importantly, how do I flourish as a human? These writings in their tradition were the primary guide for that. The Jewish nation, practicing Jews, would have known and read and used this text to have a flourishing life. So then the other context, so we have the the religious one, the Jewish one. The other one would have been for the Gentiles, uh, the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. Again, it would be impossible for us And actually kind of pointless today to try and exhaust this topic, but I still want to give you a glimpse because there are these Greek words that Jesus uses in the sermon that are really relevant to us today to help us understand how this sermon is properly translated. The first one is this, eudaimonia, right? It's one word, but I just said it in its syllables, eudaimonia, And this particular Greek word is significant. It's translated into human flourishing. And this term is common in all of the Greco-Roman philosophy writings. And it stands, and this is why it's important, it stands in opposition to the idea of hedonism. Eudaimonia is the pursuit of flourishing through societal virtue and cultural righteousness, whereas hedonism is the pursuit of flourishing through whatever brings you pleasure. Eudaimonia is the other major force. Influencing the people in Jesus's audience. So we have the Jewish wisdom literature, which is approaching life through a theological and spiritual lens. And then you have the philosophical lens that's saying, be virtuous to your society, be culturally righteous. These two threads intersect at Jesus's sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not Ultra familiar with either of these. I don't study these traditions at length, but because they are the intersection of Jesus's sermon, it's important that we understand this is how people were thinking. So there are two more terms on top of those that give us better understanding of what Jesus is saying into it to his audience, and they're again. Greek words. Now, hang on. If, you, if you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know if I'm going to remember any of this, just like maybe grab your phone, jot a little note down, because these two terms are actually going to play themselves out in the sermon directly. The first one is this. The first word is makarios, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. And this word is typically translated as blessed or happy. Now, these translations are unhelpful because happy and blessed mean very different things to us in our context than they did in their day, in the day that Jesus was teaching. We actually encounter Makarios right away in the sermon when Jesus teaches the Beatitudes, which we'll get into next week. We'll actually do a deep dive on the Beatitudes and what Jesus is saying in them for next week. But for today's sake, I want you to see where they would be placed in the sermon. So I'm going to read you the Beatitudes as they're written in the Bible. Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, as a longtime churchgoer, I've heard sermons on the Beatitudes more than I can more than I can count, probably. And so I've learned to categorize these statements into like this theological bin that I accept, right? Just like as a longtime churchgoer, I'm like, oh, those are nice. Put them in a bin, put them on my theological shelf. But as I consider the statements. If I take time to actually think on what's being said here, I have this tension. I have this tension that happens inside of me because honestly, if I'm just completely honest, on the surface, they sound like burdens, not blessings. Okay? Now, maybe you thought the same thing. And now, this is partly because uh, when I think about blessing. When I think about the word blessing, oh, such a blessing. Oh, that was such a blessing, right? You've heard people say that probably. I think of a good thing being bestowed on me specifically by God, maybe through other people, but this good thing coming from God, which indeed is a type of blessing, but it's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Mourning, that doesn't feel like a blessing right sadness that doesn't feel like a blessing from god because that's not what jesus is trying to say here he's not saying this is a blessing bestowed from god the other reason i feel attention is because i've often heard these preached as though we experience what i would call like a negative emotion like mourning i mean it's it's a healthy one but it doesn't feel good as the aspect I experience on earth and then the blessing coming later in heaven. But that doesn't work here either. That's an incorrect application because we know from our conversation last week on the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about having a life flourishing now, right? We're talking about a life where humans can flourish now, not being totally remade, as we will in the account of Revelation 21, but there's still the opportunity to flourish now. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, why? Why is being poor in spirit a blessing? He says, because the, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is true for the future, but as we know from our survey of the kingdom of heaven last week, it's also true right now because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus isn't just talking about something that's gonna happen to you in the future. Endure this tough emotion, endure this tough feeling now, and later you will be blessed. That's not what's happening here, that's the wrong application. Somehow, mourning, having a poor spirit, are a blessing right now. And that is why we need to expand our understanding of the word blessing. We need to have a more robust understanding of the word that Jesus is trying to get at in this sermon. So Makarios, in both a theological and cultural way, is better understood, not as blessed or happy, but as flourishing. And this is what um, scholars, professors, teachers of, of the Bible would call a gloss. Now again, super nerdy term. But what it means is it's a compilation of all of the English words that come together to synthesize the best use word. That's how we get to flourishing. It's not a direct translation, but given all of the context and all of the studying and all of the things that really smart people do around the biblical languages, blessed is probably less accurate in our understanding and so we will use the term flourishing instead. The big idea here is to understand that when Jesus is teaching on blessings and the Beatitudes, it's about what we do, not what's done to us, what we do and do now, not later in heaven, but actually do now in order for our life to flourish. That's the essence of Macarius. Makarios. That's why it's so important. And next week, as we read the Beatitudes, we'll touch on that so that we can see what Jesus is actually trying to help us understand. The second term that is necessary for us to carry into the journey, right? So you're going to put this in your backpack at base camp so that as you head up the mountain, right, is the word telios, T-E-L-I-O-S. And this word is translated into English with the word perfect. Oh, my wife, she's perfect, right? Oh, that meal was perfect. Like, we know the word perfect. We get it. But we encounter the word in Matthew 5.48, and it really quickly helps us understand that it's not perfect as we understand it. Because in Matthew 5.48, Jesus says to the audience that's listening to the sermon, Jews non-Christians, all kinds of people. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, certainly, Jesus cannot be teaching to his audience that they need to be perfect as God is perfect, right? That just is not possible. When I hear the word perfect, especially in the context of faith, I think of God being sinless and without blemish, which is true, so this leads me to think, based off of just reading the text, that Jesus is commanding his audience to be morally perfect and without blemish. Anybody in here? Not me, okay? That's not what's happening. So similarly to makarios, teleos is a, is a word that's much better understood by two English words, whole or Complete. Much like we would describe an athlete who does everything well as like the whole package, right? That person's the whole package. Or the person who we love deeply is the one who completes us. Oh, they complete me. That's closer to teleos. That's what teleos is getting at. So the perfect, the term perfect shows up in the sermon, and it's not a challenge to move towards moral perfection. Rather, it's the instruction to become a more whole person. It's the instruction to effort at being a more complete human. And that lines up with Jesus' teachings, right? At the end of the sermon, to build our life on his teachings, he wants us to do that so we can become a more complete, a more whole person. So, these tools, along with a few more that will show up in the coming weeks, are these necessary tools that we need in order to make the proper ascent that is the Sermon on the Mount. You've arrived at base camp, you've done the preparation, and the journey is gonna start next week. But in order for us to do that, I thought it would be really, really great if we finished our time today by just reading the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety as Jesus' audience would have heard. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter five. You can use your device or your physical Bible, whatever it may be. Or if you don't have either of those, you can just listen to the words. This is gonna be a decent amount of reading, but this is the sermon as the audience in Jesus's day would have heard it, and it is spectacular. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one, says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. You know if a preacher sits down, it's going to be a while. That's why I don't sit down, okay? (laughs) His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were here before you. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not commit murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last Penalty. Verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if the right causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words." For if you forgive other people, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their, full, their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So that, you will, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is it not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, not much more valuable than they, can any one of you by By worrying, add a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about the clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying... What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, for tomorrow will worry about, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble, trouble of its own. Chapter 7, do not judge or you will be judged. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by the fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? They then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against it, and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practices like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. That's the sermon, and the essence of that sermon is not for Jesus to just tell you a bunch of things to make you feel like, I'm not getting it right. I'm getting it wrong. But it's actually to help us understand that we don't have to wait until heaven to flourish, that we can actually live our life in a way that allows us to flourish here on earth, which is why it's so great that we're gonna be able to do that. So will you stand with me? We're gonna close with a song. Again, my challenge to you this week is going to be to reflect on these teachings. Turn the mirror towards yourself. See how you're doing. God, we thank you for this opportunity to read your, your son's words, to read Jesus' sermon, to let it influence our life, to help it change us, to show us that we are not necessarily destined to just survive, but we are actually meant to thrive here on earth as God's children. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.